Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 8.3, The Fading of the Light. Last week, we looked at some of the first-hand records of the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria still around today. These writings gave us unique insight into the ancient world and how average people saw the Great Lighthouse. Alexandria was no strangers to visitors. It quickly became one of the most important cities in the ancient world due to the magnificent lighthouse. But the lighthouse had multiple purposes. While yes, it guided ships safely into Alexandria's harbor, it also was a tourist attraction. As far as I'm aware of, this was the only wonder on this list that was actually advertised as a tourist attraction. Tourists were able to climb up the first level and onto an observation platform. Up here, there were vendors selling food, drinks, and even possible small little gifts, just like gift shops do today. There was even a smaller balcony which was on top of the second level for the more adventurous tourists. This balcony would have given those a spectacular view of the sea. More than 90 meters or 300 feet up above the Mediterranean, the view from the Pharos would have been one like none other in the ancient world. The sea in front of them, Egypt behind them. It's possible that even the Great Pyramids themselves were visible way off to the south. The golden top glistening in the Egyptian sun. This had to have been the tallest structure in the world, which the public would have been able to climb. But the Great Lighthouse did not just guide tourists into its harbor. As we saw last week, it also guided the greatest intellectuals, philosophers, linguists, scientists, merchants, religious leaders, and explorers to Alexandria. With such a variety of cultures coming together in the great city, it was the perfect place for anyone who wanted to learn about anything from another culture in the ancient world. And boy, was it a melting pot. In typical Hellenistic, or Greek-related fashion, they began to write everything down. Stories, religious practices, medications, etc. Anything and everything that someone would tell them. They would also attempt to translate documents into Greek from whatever original language they were written in. This collection of writings grew so vast that where they were housed would become another wonder of the ancient world, the Great Library of Alexandria. I won't go into any details about the library here. We will cover it aplenty on a later episode. But for now, it's important to understand that Alexandria exploded to become one of the most important cities in the world. And as such, it was a prize many would eye as the key to building a successful empire. And of all the people who visited Alexandria, generals were especially drawn to its shores. They were drawn there for one reason, grain. The annual floods of the Nile River made the floodplains on both sides incredibly fertile. They were one of the only stable, large-quantity producers of food in the ancient world. 
and for generals of the ancient world, the biggest problem that they faced was keeping their armies fed. As Alexandria continued to grow and grow, it became the obvious place to operate all Mediterranean grain shipping from. The Great Lighthouse provided safe passage for ships both around the tricky waters of the Nile Delta and the Mediterranean itself. So grain ships, merchant ships, military ships, etc., coming up out of Egypt or down from the Mediterranean were at a substantially lower risk of wrecking at Alexandria than almost any other ancient city. This was an important thing in the ancient world. Naval operations always took a back seat for most peoples of the ancient world. Because ships were expensive to build, required a lot of men to operate, and would wreck easily on the harsh waters and rough shores of the Mediterranean. But the Pharos offered safety, and thus an opportunity, for anyone willing to take the risk to try and capture this great city. And one man, the man who would change world history forever, was bold enough to step onto that stage. His name is Julius Caesar. From Alexandria's founding in 332 BC to the mid-1st century BC, Alexandria was the most powerful city of the Ptolemaic Egyptian Empire. But Alexandria and Egyptian power began to wane as Rome's power climbed. It was here at Alexandria that Julius Caesar courted that most famous of Egyptian queens, Cleopatra. Now I will not go into the Julius Caesar-Cleopatra relationship and everything that happened in that drama here on this episode. We will go more into depth about that when we cover the Great Library, for the Great Library was directly affected by the Julius-Cleopatra relationship. For the purposes of the Great Lighthouse, what is important to us here is that Rome conquered Egypt and with the death of Cleopatra and Mark Antony in 30 BC, Egypt would formally become a Roman territory. Alexandria quickly became their headquarters for all operations in East Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean. With Alexandria under Roman control, the Egyptian grain machine, now under their power, could provide enough food for the Roman soldiers to go out conquering. While Rome was big and powerful before the conquest of Egypt, it was only after the acquisition of Alexandria and its Egyptian territories that Rome could show off its true potential. Rome would go on dominating the Mediterranean for hundreds of years. But overexpansion, bad domestic policies, and selfish emperors brought Rome to a breaking point. Eventually, the empire would split in two. And it began with Constantine. Constantine, the famous first emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire, won a civil war against Roman Emperor Licinius, and Constantine officially broke the Roman Empire in two. While at this point in Roman history there were two emperors, one for the west and one for the east, it was all one empire with Rome at its center. But with Constantine's victory, Rome was officially split in two. Rome the capital of the west, and Constantinople now the capital of the eastern side of the empire. After Rome split, Alexandria remained a vital city for the Byzantine Empire. Egypt was still the main food supplier for the Byzantines, 
and Alexandria was one of the most important cities to the Byzantines in their early years. Despite this reliance, though, Alexandria began to slip once again from its place of prominence in an empire. Constantinople was quickly becoming the most important, biggest city in the east. Alexandria was still the lifeline of the Eastern Roman Empire, though. But it would not be for long. In the early 7th century AD, the Persians came and conquered Alexandria. But Byzantine Emperor Heraclius managed to retake the city and drive the Persians back. But this conquest would prove costly, and the Byzantines were unable to reinforce the army in Egypt. And a bigger, badder enemy was looming just beyond the border. The rising Arabs. This new power was not just a military threat, but also a religious contender. And they had their eyes set on knocking the Byzantines out of the southern Mediterranean. Egypt was naturally one of the Arabs' first targets, as it was close to their own borders. The Arabs also knew that if they were able to take Alexandria, the Byzantines would never be able to threaten them seriously again. In 641 AD, Muslim general Amr ibn al-As marched the Arab army into Egypt with the goal of conquering Alexandria. This would prove easier than anticipated. The Byzantines were strong for the first hundred years or so of their empire, but a combination of the plague and religious tension in the Byzantine Empire had since made it weak, and the Arabs took full advantage. In 641, they marched into Alexandria and completely overwhelmed what few Roman soldiers remained in the city. Alexandria and its lighthouse were now in enemy hands. With the conquest of Alexandria, the Pharos' importance began to wane. With the Byzantines still controlling much of the shipping in the eastern Mediterranean, the Arab caliphates put little effort into their own navy. They did have a navy, but it was mostly comprised of warships, as the Arabs did not conduct much trade on the Mediterranean. So the Pharos began to be ignored. Basic maintenance was foregone, and the Pharos slowly began to crumble. But the most damaging thing that the Arabs did to the Pharos was as a result of a writing. Al-Maswadi, an Arab writer in 944 AD, wrote a tale about how Alexander the Great had thrown a bunch of gold, silver, and other treasure into the water off the coast of Faros Island, and that the Great Lighthouse itself was built to protect this treasure. Now, I personally do not believe this story. I mean, why would Alexander do that? And the lighthouse was built after his death, so someone else would have had to have known the treasure's location. And if Alexander had already died and you knew there was treasure, why would you not go and take that treasure for yourself and set yourself up as a king somewhere? But in 944 AD, the Arab caliph Al-Mustafi Bilayah bought this tale, hook, line, and sinker. Convinced that this treasure was just within his reach, he ordered a thorough search of the coastline surrounding Faros Island. And in their search, the Arabs partially destroyed the Great Lighthouse. And needless to say, no treasure was found. But the Arabs, to their credit, realized that they might have made a mistake. 
they quickly restored the great lighthouse. The first description of this restored lighthouse came from Arab geographer Al-Maswadi, who we talked about last week. The restored lighthouse looked very similar to the original, with a rectangular base, an octagonal second level, and a circular third level. While this was all the same as the original, this restored one was built out of some less sturdy materials than the original stone. This restored lighthouse, at least the second level, was built out of brick and stucco rather than stone. Al-Naswadi actually measured the height of this lighthouse and measured the first level to be 110 cubits. And the second and third levels were both about 60 cubits. The entire restored lighthouse measured about 230 cubits in height, or 105 meters, about 345 feet. This restored lighthouse was a little shorter of the original, which stood closer to 400 feet high, but it was still impressive. Future travelers would add some more interesting details about the restored lighthouse. They made mention how the first level was accessible via a causeway, just like the original. The causeway was wide enough to allow someone on horseback to climb it comfortably. There were also at least 22 openings in the first level of the restored lighthouse, just like the original. These were there to allow the wind to pass through the structure, so the lighthouse would not have to bear the full brunt of strong Mediterranean winds. In 1117 AD, as we mentioned last week, a well-known Arab traveler, Al-Garnati, stopped in Alexandria and explored the restored lighthouse. He also made a simple drawing of the lighthouse, and we still have this drawing today. I have a picture of this drawing up on the website. His description of the lighthouse is slightly different than ones previously made a few centuries earlier. Algarnati, in his drawing, depicts the entire lighthouse of hewn stone. As we just mentioned, though, the second story of the lighthouse was made out of stucco and brick. So, did Algarnati actually climb up to the second level? There's no way to know an answer to this question, at least not here in our modern times. But either way, we know that the first story was made of hewn stone, so he was right about that. Algarnati also mentions that the entrance to the restored lighthouse was elevated, just like the original. This was done so that the lighthouse would not flood in case of large storm waves. Algarnati does make an interesting observation about the restored lighthouse. He says that it was topped with the domed pavilion, or a mirror, which could have been used to shine the sun directly at enemy ships getting too close, and set them on fire. This sounds like something out of a science fiction movie, but it honestly could have happened. Did it happen? Maybe once or twice, and most likely by accident. But if it did happen, those records would have been preserved, so friendly ships would remain safe. But a threat to enemy ships remained. But Alexandria in the 12th century was under no threat from the enemies of the Arab Caliphates, so lighting enemy ships on fire with the lighthouse's mirror most likely didn't happen. But by far the most detailed account of the restored lighthouse that we have today comes to us from 1165 AD. As we mentioned last week, Al-Balawi, an Arab traveler, made meticulous measurements of the lighthouse. He attached a stone to a string, 
and was thus able to get rather precise measurements of the lighthouse itself. When he measured it, the lighthouse had just had some minor repair work done and was operating well. He measured the rectangular base to be about 77 meters or 245 feet high, the second octagonal level to be about 37 meters or 123 feet high, and the third a cylindrical level to be about 10 meters or 33 feet high. The cylindrical level on top also had a mosque built above it that gave the lighthouse an additional 7.5 meters or 25 feet in height. The total height of the restored lighthouse, according to Abalawi's measurements, was about 131.5 meters or 431 feet tall. This is probably as close to the original Pharos that the restored lighthouse ever got. Similar in height, it towered over the harbor of Alexandria and shone its light to sailors up to a hundred miles out to sea. But Abalawi didn't just measure the height. He also measured the length of each side of each level. The first level he measured to be 30 and a half meters or 100 feet wide at the very base of the lighthouse, with it inclining slowly to being 26 meters or 86 feet wide at the top. The second level was 16 and a half meters or 54 feet wide, and the third level was about 9 meters or 29 feet wide with the mosque crowning the top to be about 4 meters or 14 feet wide. Again, these proportions were probably very close, if not an exact reproduction of the original Pharos. Now, it was a little taller than the original, thanks to the mosque on top. But if you count the statues, which would have adorned the original Pharos, these two lighthouses were almost identical. In 1195 AD, the lighthouse was measured again. This time it was measured to be about 122 meters or 400 feet high. Now why it was measured a little shorter, not even a hundred years later, who knows. But what was different this time was that it was more of a simple watchtower than the beautiful lighthouse described not even a hundred years previous. People commented on how the lighthouse began to look very ordinary, nothing special. If this was the case, which I believe to be so, the restored lighthouse would have looked nothing like the original Pharos. The original was a beautiful spike of white and gold, connecting earth to heaven, with the light on top being the eye of the gods. But the new restored lighthouse was a shadow by comparison, and it would only be a few more centuries before this restored lighthouse would fall permanently. By 1227 AD, the restored lighthouse had fallen into a severe state of decay. The causeway which connected the lighthouse to the mainland was gone. The lighthouse was no longer accessible by land. At this time, just about the entire structure had to have been restored, even the first level and everything in it. But this was a problem for the Arab empires. They did not have the magnitude of wealth that the Ptolemaic empires or previous empires had had, which were able to restore the lighthouse properly. Then on August 8th, 1303 AD, the final blow. The lighthouse was on its last legs, in a sad state of disrepair, falling apart and abandoned. On that date, an earthquake struck near Alexandria. The decaying lighthouse 
unlike the original Pharos, was unable to withstand the power of the earthquake and the subsequent waves. It collapsed, never to rise again. But the fallen lighthouse still stood somewhat in the harbor of Alexandria for 200 more years. It wasn't until sometime in the 15th century that the lighthouse was completely dismantled. But the Arabs made good use of the stones they took from the great lighthouse. They used these stones to build Fort Ketebe, a fort that guarded the entrance to Alexandria. This fort still stands there today, and I have some pictures of it up on the website. The collapse of the great lighthouse of Alexandria is a sad day for modern historians. It stood for more than 1,500 years in the harbor of Alexandria, and we missed it. But not all is lost. As we just mentioned, stones from the original Pharos are still there in the harbor of Alexandria and Fort Ketebe. But these are not the only stones remaining from the Pharos there in the harbor. On the seafloor, just off the coast, there are a number of large cut stones. These stones were discovered in 1968 when underwater archaeology around the fort and the island of Pharos began. But these efforts were quickly stuffed out, as proper equipment was hard to come by. The continued exploration of the seafloor would not begin again until the early 1990s. And in 1994, an astonishing discovery was made. The archaeologists found large blocks of cut stone, statues, and other Egyptian artifacts on the seafloor. While it might be impossible to prove that these stones actually came from the Pharos, it's a pretty safe bet that's what they are. The stones are remarkable, huge, and there are a number of them that litter the sea floor. Why else would they be there if they were not from the fallen Pharos? The Egyptian government is even discussing the possibility of opening up an underwater museum in the harbor of Alexandria. Some of the stones are so big that bringing them up to the surface is going to take some extreme machinery and be extremely dangerous. So an underwater museum might actually be the easier task. And this way, tourists and historians can get up close and personal with the remains of the pharos where they lay. This would be amazing. Using the peak construction technology of today, to get up close and personal with the peak construction technology of more than 2,000 years ago. Now ever since I have started this podcast, people have been asking me, of all the wonders on this list, which would you give the title of the greatest wonder of the ancient world to? Now while each wonder on this list has a legit argument for that title, to me, it's the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria that is the greatest wonder of the ancient world. No, it didn't stand the longest. No, it wasn't built out of precious materials. And no, it didn't house some amazing treasure. But what it did do was change Western civilization forever. The Pharos allowed Rome to grow into what it became, thus changing the Western world forever. No other wonder on this list whether in the West or in the East, can make a claim like that. Also, there was no other wonder of the ancient world that was used as much as the Great Lighthouse. 
Yes, some of the other wonders on this list were used, like the temples along the Avenue of the Dead or Trajan's Bridge, but none of them were used every day, probably by hundreds of people, for more than a thousand years. And no wonder of the ancient world took a beating from nature like the Pharos did. The Colossus of Rhodes is a perfect example. It fell just after 60 years, but the Pharos stood proud and strong for millennia. The Pharos guided people from all over Europe, Africa, and Asia to its shores. It created such a lavish and exotic marketplace that people crossed distant deserts and seas to explore its city. Alexandria became the host to the single greatest collection of information until the invention of the internet. For a moment, the great lighthouse of Alexandria brought the world together so everyone could partake of the knowledge of the great city. For its size, how long it stood, what it endured, who came to see it, and its legacy, the great lighthouse of Alexandria is fully deserving of the title of greatest wonder of the ancient world. It honestly humbles me to think about it like that. But for next week, we will move on from the greatest wonder of the ancient world to perhaps the most mythical. Empires, kingdoms, crusades, movie directors, and more have been focused on the next wonder for thousands of years. At the center of perhaps the most holy city in the world, two competing religions are looking for the sacred spot upon which it stood. Built by the wisest man in history, housing one of the most mythical, powerful artifacts in history, and perhaps one of the most expensive buildings of the ancient world, this next wonder has been capturing imaginations for millennia. Yeah.